Good afternoon and welcome to this edition of Always Ready, the program dedicated to encouraging the church to discern truth from lie, right from wrong, and right from mostly right. And ultimately, how to look at the world around us through the lens of Scripture. There are a lot of truth claims being made every day, but only one truth remains, and that is found in God's Holy Word. My name is David Lohman, my friends call me Dilo, and I am your host and fellow pilgrim in Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for joining me today for Always Ready. I want you to be informed. I want you to be entertained. But most importantly, I want you to be always ready. Today is Wednesday, April 9th, 2014, and welcome to edition two, volume 35 of Always Ready and the Multnomah University Studios. The best way to get in touch with me, as always, is on Twitter, at DLoAlwaysReady, at DLoAlwaysReady, or you can send me an email at alwaysready at kpdq.com. Well, what is on tap for today's program? Well, if you've been paying attention this week, you know we've been talking a lot about history. Now, there's the old saying that those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. But when it comes to some things in history, the church today would probably benefit from repeating it. And today's guest, and we'll get to in a moment, Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis of uh, Concordia University is going to talk about one such person, and that is the life of Martin Luther. Tomorrow's show, David Hall, Pastor David Hall, will be talking to us about the life of John Calvin. Now, this week we're looking at the actual history, where, in the, where next week we're going to take the impact of that history. We're going to be taking a look at what exactly happened in the Reformation that has impacted the church, society, culture, law, politics ever since then. It's really important that we have an understanding that our history impacts our present. But before we can do anything, we have to make sure that we're in the right mindset, we know what it's all about, and we introduce ourselves to the world of education with the Always Ready University. That's right. Once again, we have now entered the sacred halls of the Always Ready University building. It looks a lot like the Multnomah Studios, just a little bit higher. There's, a, there's more of a feeling of, of, of intellectual curiosity every single time that song plays. And today's show is all about intellectual curiosity. Yesterday, we finished with our discussion talking about uh, Jan Hus. Now, Jan Hus was um, a Czech reformer about 100 years before Luther. In fact, that 100 years is really important to get an understanding of what actually took place. Because as Jan Hus was burning at the stake, there was a uh, reports that he made several different comments. And one of them, and it's important to know that the word Hus um, in his language actually is goose. And he made a reference to his goose being cooked. But that 100 years from now, a swan would arise. And it would be about 100 years later that we'd be introduced to a man by the name of Martin Luther. We're going to go to my guest right now, Dr. Daniel Van Verus. Is that close enough for how can we get the the best way to pronounce the name? That's very close. It's uh, Daniel Van Voris. Van Voris. You know, I called uh, a couple of your ex-students, previous students today, to try, yes, I was talking to uh, Craig uh, D'Onofrio and talking to Chris Rosebrow. 
okay, yeah. today, and um, I said, I need to know how to say the last name. I didn't want to screw it up, so I'm glad that close. I might just say Professor for the rest of the show. That'd now, you fine. are, um, you are you at... Can call me Dan. That's okay. Well. Uh, we are, uh, uh, we are uh, talking to, da- uh, to Dan, Professor Dan. That might be our best way to go today. He All is, right. He is the Chair of History and Political Thought at Concordia University in Irvine, California. You also co-host your own podcast called Virtue in the Wasteland. It's a weekly podcast. You deal with issues of culture, vocation, and you can grab that on iTunes or you can just go to virtueinthewasteland.com. Before we get going in our conversation about Martin Luther, tell me a little bit about uh, Virtue in the Wasteland. Yeah, absolutely. Virtue in the Wasteland comes out of a group called Lutheran Theology, uh, the Center for Lutheran Theology and Public Life. Uh, Dr. Uwe Simonetto, who was a reporter uh, for years and years, uh, and a Luther scholar, uh, set up a uh, an organization. He moved out to the West Coast. It moved with him. And then the uh, mantle was passed on to my colleague Jeffrey Mallinson and myself, uh, and we thought the best way to, to talk about uh, culture from a, a, a you know, and vocation from a, a Christian perspective um, would be in sort of the era of new media to do a podcast. And so we started uh, about nine months ago and have had uh, really incredible success. It's been a, a really fun time. We, we put out a show every Sunday morning, and we've got uh, various professors and friends, and we talk about all things culture and, and Christianity and, uh, and vocation. So it, it comes right out of Luther's theology of two kingdoms uh, and, and vocation. And that's uh, what we do. It's a, it's a good time. Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, when I first started emailing and, just, and talking to you, it was back in October. We had hoped to have maybe kind of something around Reformation Day. And in fact, uh, uh, hopefully by the time we're done here, you're going to have such a great time that you say, yeah, I'll come back and talk about Reformation Day and spend a little bit more time. Uh, since today we don't have a whole lot of time, we're going to kind of bounce through the life of Martin Luther, um, sure. maybe spend a little bit more time dealing with the 95 Thesis and the pounding on the, uh, the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door and all those sort of issues sometime around the Reformation Day, uh, which, which, of course, shares its date with Halloween, uh, <laughs> which uh, is All Hallows' Eve and All Saints' Day and all this sort of stuff that is attached to that. Now, um, I'm not sure if you had a chance to hear the introduction. I talked a little bit about Jan, Jan Hus and the... Uh, the legend built around him saying that his goose was cooked, but that within a hundred years that a swan would arise. Yes, and, and yeah, it's very, almost very oft quoted. Yes, uh, a very about, often about Luther. <laughs> and 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 but it is a, it is a great. There's great irony in that it would be almost exactly a hundred years later that he'd begin this uh, teaching through the Book of Psalms and then into the Book of Romans and into the Book yeah. of Galatians. And I guess if you want to understand justification, those are three really good books. Yeah, I, I think uh, some of my my colleagues here in Christ College at Concordia Irvine would say that Luther on Galatians is about as as straightforward you can get. If you're looking for Luther on justification, it's his doctrine. It's it's his uh, commentary on the Book of Galatians. Now there is an unfortunate uh, mindset within much of Christianity, and I dealt with this yesterday when I was talking to Dr. Daniel Skalberg from up here at Multnomah, that there's this almost this idea that after the Apostle John died, there weren't any Christians for 1,500 years, yeah. um, and because we really don't have much of a sense of history. And we talked about everyone from Polycarp to Augustine, which I now say Augustine because now I'm smarter and no longer say Augustine. Like the city in Florida. Yeah. Um, but and we talked about Aquinas and Gerhard Grotha, and you know we went through a whole bunch of names that some people were familiar with. Some weren't. We talked a little bit about Wycliffe and, and finished up talking about Hus, but one of the things that kind of rose up more and more as we got closer to Luther was what l- life was like for the average person 
in Europe during those 100 to 200 years before Luther, it was kind of a mess when it came to the issues with the popes. There was talks of brothels in the Vatican um, with unbelievable amount of taxes or, or le- levied upon people with indulgences. Worship was only in Latin. Um, my, one story that I actually read just yesterday was there was a pope who actually dug up the bones of, the, of his predecessor, wrapped him in the pope regalia, put him on trial, and cut off the two bones of his blessing fingers— and and threw them into the river. That's yeah, crazy. You know, <laughs> the, the medieval papacy has uh, a uh, a reputation as uh, you know corrupt and and doing things that were uh, less than uh, salutary, and and it's 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 deserved. It is uh, you know. I think you can find any religious body, any Christian body, and if you want to dig things up uh, or or look for dirt, unfortunately, you're going to find it anywhere. But there's a particular, uh, something very particular about the medieval papacy. And, you know, to, to talk about, you know, there was the great, the great schism where you had three popes at one time. And they all anathematized and, the other. Exactly. <laughs> and you've got anti-popes and popes, and you've got popes who are, are trying to act like emperors while emperors are trying to act like popes. And so you really have a struggle in Europe over authority. And I think that's really where Luther starts, and that's where the Reformation starts, is this question of authority. About a 100 years before the Reformation, in the era that you were discussing with Jan Hus, there was a council, and at this council, they discussed something called conciliarism. Basically, that was a bunch of medieval uh, theologians got together and said, who has authority in the church? Because the councils said, hey, we, we're the ones that pick the pope, so ultimately don't we have the authority? And that was sort of the first crack uh, in the medieval papacy and its, its sort of misuse of its authority. Yeah, and that's, that, that's, yeah. and that's really interesting because uh, we've got about a minute before we have to go to a break, and I kind of want to deal with what, what, you know, what was Martin Luther born into? And so uh, when we go, we go to the break, we're going to come back, we're going to kind of ask that kind of question. What was he, what, what would it be a person, you know, Martin Luther, he's born, he's raised the first 15, 20, 30 years of his life. What is life like for somebody like a Martin Luther? And also dispel some of the myths, and we might be thinking as we go to the break, the myths like, oh, he was just a poor little peasant um, a priest who really didn't know much going in. There's a lot of myths built around Luther that Absolutely. simply true, uh, end up not being true. So you're listening to my guest, Professor Dan from Concordia University, and uh, right here on Always Ready. Welcome back to Always Ready. This is Dave Lohman. My guest is Dr. Daniel Van Vries. And I, you know what? I, I've decided that, um, um, that, good doctor, I will never butcher your last name as much as I butchered names like Eusebius. And Irenaeus, <laughs> and the there rest. Hard one. For or, the Chrysostom. Uh, yes, the, one as well. The, the first five hundred years of the church were just impossible names to pronounce. Uh, but to be honest with you, as we start our discussion about Martin Luther, I really, I kind of want to get us into the mood as to who this Martin Luther was. So, if you'll just indulge me the next thirty to forty seconds, I'd like to start with this. Almighty, 
All right, now we should be all set for the mood. By the way, the most recorded and most popular hymn in history. It's it's certainly it's it's certainly up there. That's a very very famous across uh, across all all denominations. In fact, I read a very interesting uh, little tidbit of information uh, just the other day that Jesus Christ is the most popular subject of books ever written, and Martin Luther is number two. That's that's very believable. The number of, of works on Luther are are legion. Uh, we probably don't need as many as we have, but uh, but he certainly has attracted scholarship for uh, well for for centuries now. Yeah, it, it's it's really amazing. So, getting back to our question right before the break, what was life like in the church for a five ten year old Martin Luther? Well, Luther is living in Saxony, and in Saxony, he is the the son of a, a pretty. He's a pretty successful father. His father's a miner, and this is the the end of the 1400s. And Saxony is is part of what we now call Germany, but then it's the Holy Roman Empire. And so, being in the Holy Roman Empire, he's he's probably familiar with the the struggle between you know his local uh, authority and the emperor and the pope, and and he's aware that there are different authorities. Uh, vying uh, for control of this very fertile, very important land, and so he grows up in a, a period where uh, he's he's familiar. He knows that there's that there are authority issues, and he is is going to be in this church that is kind of there's kind of a paradox about the medieval church. It is at one time, you know, very unpopular, you know, because of you know the, the just the money it would cost, right, for the, for the forgiveness of sins for penance. At the same time, the late medieval church is very popular. When we look at church records, we see that many medieval people, despite its its failings, they really liked the church. They were giving money to the church. They were giving their you know writing their wills to the church. And so sometimes people say, well, then then why was the Reformation so successful? And I, I sort of give the analogy of if you're going to change something in your local parish, who's going to be most upset or involved with that change? Is it going to be the person that comes to church every Easter and Christmas? Or is it going to be the people that are very involved in the church? So you've got people very involved in the church, but at the same time, there's the question about authority, and ultimately, who has what to say? And this is the life that that Luther, this is the, the, the world that Luther grows up in, a world where authority from, uh, you know, the local parish priest to the, the uh, you know, the governor to the emperor to the pope. And so that's, he's, he's living in a confusing time. Yeah, and, and, and at that same time, the, to kind of overcome some of the myths, it, it's in, interesting to note, um, he attends the University of, of Erfurt at, like, what, 19? Graduate? Yeah, he, he attends university at uh, quite a young, uh, well, by our standards, quite a young age. He finishes his degree, uh, in his, his master's degree in his early 20s. And then is the you know his father is 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 well to do well enough to do to send him to law school, which is what most uh, well to do uh, you know son, fathers did for their sons. And it's in 1505 when he has his famous sort of lightning uh, bolt confession, where he's in a, a rainstorm and lightning strikes, and he says, "Help me, Saint Anne! I will become a monk." And he joins a, a monastery, and it just so happens that the monastery he joins is Augustinian. Oh, you uh, mentioned Augustine earlier. Yes. And the Augustinian uh, uh, um, monastery that he joins is going to be really 
uh, important for him because of all the various monasteries and groups of of mendicant uh, groups of different orders. The Augustinians are the ones that are going to focus the most on ideas of sin and redemption and um, the authority that God has to forgive sins. And, 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 so, and would the Augustinians also have a, a very high view of Scripture? I think, yes. Um, they Everyone had a high view of Scripture, for the most part, but they would have a very high view of uh, the the depth of sin that Scripture uh, pushes uh, one to uh, to hold. So it's he's very and you know he goes through what he calls infectung, which is a great German word for just a whole bunch of stress. And this is this is where he he's living. He he doesn't know to whom he owes his uh, allegiance, whether it be to his priest or his prior to the emperor or to the pope, uh, to the words of Scripture or the tradition of Scripture. He's living in, in such a, a confusing time when it comes to the, uh, the issue of authority that ultimately this, this drives him to, to study the Scripture. And, and he gets his master's degree in exegesis. And so here's, he's a guy that's working with the New Testament. He's working with uh, the Gospels and Paul and the Epistles. And it is in his early years, around 1517, when he comes to realize that the Church does not have the authority it said it had when it came to forgiving sins. And that's what the 95 Theses are all about. If, if you're looking for justification, as we said before the break, go to Luther's commentary on Galatians, which was written later. The, the 95 Theses, which Luther, you know, famously uh, pins or nails to the door at the, the church in, in Wittenberg, have to do with repentance and authority. Now, and now so le- that's, yes. I'm just saying, leading up to that, there's a, there's a couple things that, that kind of take place, um, and I think it's kind of important for us to understand, I definitely want my listeners to understand, um, that high view of sin, though, led to some pretty... Uh, uh, his health was hurt by what he would inflict upon himself in order to kind of wash away or, or eliminate his own sin because of some held beliefs on how we are justified. Absolutely. He uh, would would fast. He would, you know, block himself away so much so in, in, in fasting uh, in his his room at the priory, the Augustinian priory, that his confessor would have to come to him and say, you got to stop. you got to come eat. And Luther would say, I'm not finished confessing all my sins. And, you know, uh, his name was Staupitz. His confessor said, you're never going to be able to uh, to confess all of your sins. Come out and eat. And, uh, you know, he, he did everything he could. He went to Rome, climbed the steps of the Vatican, did you know, up and down, and yeah. Talk a little bit about what what is what was the reason for Rome? Wasn't there, but wasn't it? You know, if you've seen the movie Luther, there's this great scene where he's you know he's crawling up on his knees up to these long steps, but then he also goes and and visits kind of the the different artifacts. And somebody the other day I was listening to jokingly referred to that there's a, a there were enough pieces of wood from the cross of Christ to build the ark. Yeah, there, this was, it was believed, you know, the, the doctrine of grace uh, had sort of become this very untenable, hard-to-grasp thing. And so it was believed that grace emanated out, you know, like, like sunbeams 
from various things, whether it be the altar at your church, or from the the seat of the the Pope himself, or from relics that were, you know, whether it be pieces of the cross or relics from various uh, saints and, and apostles. So you would have an entire industry based on having relics. And so whether you were in um, Spain or where I lived for a while up in St. Andrews, Scotland, you have a whole industry, a sort of vacation-type industry, based on people coming to visit the saints. Because so touch this, emanates. touch this, caress this, drop a couple coins in this to see this, Absolutely. and all that sort of stuff, a, a circus sideshow, not unlike what Christian bookstores have been in the past. Yeah, uh, There's a lot <laughs> yeah, of those yeah. sort of things. Now, we're just about to go to a break. We've got just about a minute left, so I, I want to get to a break because I think that this visit to Rome— and what happens in Luther's life? Because um, uh, right after that, he he moves and, and moves to Wittenberg, and it becomes this this doctor and begins lecturing on these books that would change his life. So this visit to Rome was uh, was as we could tell very important in his life. And we're going to finish that conversation and begin looking at this transition in Luther's life that leads to the ninety five thesis and leads to what is known as the Diet of Worms. I'm working on my V and W <laughs> pronunciation. Um, when we come back, we'll start that discussion of church history in the life of Martin Luther right here on Always Ready. Welcome back to Always Ready. How, complete irony, this was not done on purpose, but that quote that uh, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does has actually been attributed to Luther. Yeah, it certainly is, is part and parcel of, of Luther's theology and, and what good works are for, not to gain salvation, but rather to serve your neighbor. Okay, so we are talking about his visit to Rome. He sees a lot of the decadence. In fact, I think there's a line in, in when I was reading on Luther that he says, like, the closer he got to Rome, the more decadence and more sin there was. That, it, you know, it, it, it had just fallen into uh, disrepute, and it was really not this wonderful pristine, glorious, God-centered place that he expected. So he comes home with what appears to be a different mindset about things um, and begins his lecturing in Psalms and Romans and Galatians. Yeah, he comes back and, and he, he starts to work through Psalms and Romans, and he's lecturing in, in Wittenberg, which is this little town. And there's an, an elector, Frederick, who you know builds this university and, and sort of wants to make uh, this little town, a sort of world-famous university town, and so he gets Luther and he gets people like Philip Melanchthon and others to come teach. And when Luther first gets to Wittenberg and starts teaching, he writes uh, three texts, these little tiny texts, and one of them is called On the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And, And he's talking about Rome as Babylon. So he certainly had this picture, this idea that Rome had fallen so far uh, that it was it was now Babylon, and that the church was being held captive in Rome. Now you mentioned in passing real quickly, um, uh, Frederick. Is that was known as Prince Frederick? Yes. And he yeah. was actually, in a sense, potentially in line, or or could have been the uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, sort of. Yeah, he's a very, very powerful man. He, he decided to sort of stick close to home, uh, but he he wanted his city to, to be sort of the, the jewel of the German territory. But he becomes very important later, does he not? Yes. Well, you know, at the Diet of Worms, so Luther's teaching on the Babylonian captivity of the Church. He, you know, he's posted his 95 theses, that's 1517, in the 1520s. Now, can, can you, before we, we go on and, sure. and deal with Frederick, I want to make sure that we understand, um, because this is what you, you, know, you see in movies and you misplace things, you don't know where stuff really takes place. 
where is Tetzel and 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 do the 95 thesis primarily deal with what he experienced dealing with Tetzel on indulgences or what really takes place there historically? Well, Tetzel is not allowed in town. Uh, there are plenty of preachers, and the, the doctrine of the Church was that in order to uh, have your sins forgiven, you had to pay. You had to pay doing penance. Part of doing penance was paying for indulgences. Tetzel wasn't allowed in town, and this partly has to do with Frederick being uh, a character who didn't want uh, intrusion from other people. But Tetzel would be outside of town, and and Luther would be you know very agitated by this because he'd already been to Rome, he'd been back, he'd been working through the Psalms and Romans, and so you know as he's hearing this, he's he's saying he's thinking this, this is wrong. This this idea that Tetzel is saying we can earn repentance, we can pay for repentance, that's wrong, and so. He, you know, sort of like a, a, a community bulletin board, that's what the church door was like. He decides that he's going to. to like go bingo this to, Thursday night, you kind of just put up your. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Like at a Starbucks. And he, and he puts it up and he says, you know, here are 95 theses. And almost all of them have to do with authority and the true nature of repentance. These immediately are, are picked up and translated. The, the printing press is relatively new. It's within the past couple decades. The printing press is picking up. Here is this young German who has taken on the, the Pope. And so people across Germany wanted these theses. They wanted to know about this kid who was uh, daring to challenge the Pope and, and sort of the Pope's main source of revenue at the time to build uh, his basilica. And so the theses are spreading all across Europe. They're being translated into French and English. And they put him really on the, the center stage. And so he shows up. He's called uh, before uh, the Pope, and he's called to recant. And this is where he has the, it's in all the movies, and the one thing people know about Luther is he goes to the Diet of Worms, and he, they say, well, do you, you need to take back the parts of the 95 Theses that the Church has decided are heretical. And he says, well, unless, you know, Scripture or, or reason tells me otherwise, I, I can't. Here I stand, I can do no other. And that, that begins, in many ways, his, uh, his own movement. He, he, his excommunication. He didn't want to leave the Church. He was excommunicated from the church, and he responds to that excommunication, doesn't he? The, yes, he, some, he takes the papal bull that excommunicates him, and he goes right outside of town, right where Tetzel would be selling his indulgences, and he set it on fire. <laughs> yeah, he said no thanks, and this was this wasn't easy for him as someone who grew up in the church in the late medieval church. It, to break away was was really really difficult because salvation was found. He was taught within the church, and now he's just put himself outside the church. But he, he realizes after going to Rome, after reading you know, and teaching through the Psalms and Romans and Galatians, that, there is, that's, that salvation is found in Christ, not in Rome. Now, it's at this exact same time, and this is one of the interesting things, and for, for those of us who have an idea of the sovereignty of God as an overarching thing, you do see God's hand working in these these things, because you have an emperor who's kind of young and, and new on the job and kind of says, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, he, you know, he allows for Frederick to pretty much dictate 
um, you know, what will be the, the rules of safe passage and, and Frederick's, allowed yeah. to, uh, Frederick's allowed to send his own uh, little men uh, to support and protect. Um, and, and I don't think any of the movies even show just the intensity of being kidnapped by Frederick. Oh, yeah. and there's some called, stuff going on. You get called to see the Pope and you don't agree with him when you get there, it's pretty clear what's going to happen. You're going to be burned. Um, or with the emperor. And the emperor, uh, who's Charles V, he's a young young kid, a young Habsburg, he knows that these 95 theses have spread everywhere. And if he kills Luther, he's going to lose all of his support, in, or much of his support, in the German lands. And it just so happens that to the east, you have a bunch of uh, Muslim Turks who are crossing the Danube and want to fight Charles V. And so Charles V lets Luther go. Well, Frederick still doesn't believe... Frederick still thinks, no, they're going to take my man. And so he's kidnapped, and he's uh, sent up to a a castle where he's going to spend uh, over a year, and that's where he's going to translate the the New Testament. And and so he spends that time with the Wartburg Castle... Yeah. And he begins this translation of the New Testament. Now, when he's translating it, I just is this is just me speaking, um, not knowing for sure. Does he is he only able to use Latin text? Is there now some Greek text that he is able to uh, to use, or is he just using Latin Vulgate? What is he using for the translation? He's he's most likely using the uh, the Vulgate. He'll be using uh, just the the standard Saint Jerome's Latin Vulgate, but he's translating it into German. But we still have his translation of the of the New Testament in German, correct? We do. Yeah, we do. And it's it's um, you know it's sort of a, a nice thing. I, I would say, you know, probably. There's, there are other Bibles that you might want to use uh, based on, on, on yeah. textual criticism, but I'll, I'll leave that to my, my colleagues in the New Testament, whether you should use the, um, you know, what, what Bible, I, you know, the ESV, I think, is a, a standard one. So, but we still have his Bible. Yeah, yeah and, and him translating it into, into the vernacular, into the common language. Into the common language, which, of was course, was also a danger. Important. That was also something that was not very uh, well uh, thought of by, uh, by the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Well, yeah, but you, I mean, it's, it's, there's an issue of authority. And whoever holds the book holds the authority. And it's, it's not dissimilar to say, you know, holding the Constitution and saying, no, you can't look at it. <laughs> we'll, we'll tell you what's in it. And, um, and, and then just trust us, right? I mean, it's, 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 I mean that's, that'd be unthinkable. Yeah. Americans. The the critics of Luther you'll often hear will say, "Oh, he was just mad because he wanted to marry a nun." So this, uh, <laughs> what I want to do, we're going to go to a break real quick, and we're going to uh, in our last segment, I want to kind of talk about maybe dealing with some of these controversies, some of these things about the life of Luther that are. Um, how shall we say, uh, misrepresented by, by his critics. Also take a look at you know, uh, some of the great works that are must-reads. I don't care if you're Lutheran or not, you must read Bondage of the Will. There are certain things that, that are, historically speaking, that need to be read within the Church, and that is one of those books. So uh, we're going to come back in just a minute. We're going to deal in more detail about finishing up the life of Luther and also some of the controversies around his life right here on Always Ready. Welcome back to Always Ready. We're in the midst of our discussion. In fact, just finishing up our discussion on the life of Martin Luther with my uh, new friend, uh, Dr. Daniel Van Verus of Concordia University. If you want some more information, you can listen to his own podcast on iTunes, or you can grab it at virtueinthewasteland.com. Pastor Dan, thank you for holding on for our last uh, segment. Now, after this, and it's about this time, too, that I also read 
that Luther was just this crazy prolific writer. I mean, he was literally writing a book a month almost, it seemed like. Um, he was writing uh, pamphlets and, and books, and, and it was just after the Diet of Worms over the next several years, after he gets married. Um, Bondage of the Will, um, the, uh, his great treatise against the, the works of Erasmus. Um, and, but one of those things, and I want to deal with it and kind of get it out of the way, he also writes what some people could be considered some pretty uh, difficult or nasty things about Jews. Can you really help us understand that? Sure. Yes, uh, he writes towards the end of his life. Uh, Martin Luther writes uh, a, a tract entitled "On the Jews and Their Lies," and it's it's a, a, a it is a troubling text. And I don't think we can uh, we don't want to try and, and justify what what he did there. He's dealing with the Jewish theology. He's dealing with what he sees to be even worse than Catholicism, someone that not only thinks they have to, to earn God's grace, uh, earn Christ's favor, but, but don't recognize Christ. And so his writings, uh, they're towards the end of his year, they're, they're very, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're inexcusable. But at the same time, the, the church, uh, the, the Protestant church, has said, well, Luther was a good man, but he'd be the first to tell you that, that he's a sinner with some dumb ideas. He's got some good ideas, and he's got some dumb ideas. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know what he would say if he was around today, uh, but I, I'm based on his other teachings. He certainly would say, well, you know, his work proclaiming the gospel um, was his primary job. And when he was doing maybe some social commentary, um, that's when he got into trouble. Yeah, and but, but but part of it, and, and need to understand that everybody is a is a person of their time, um, and I, I would almost see in some of the writing that I read that um, he's also responding to some some pretty nasty things said about Jesus and Jesus's mother. I mean, there were some pretty uh, vulgar terms coming at it from some of the uh, Jewish theologians who would make uh, certain references to who Jesus is and and Jesus's mother and such and. And, and yeah. his response probably wasn't as gracious, um, but but at the same time, someone might have to have to wonder when you compare it to what he said about the papacy. Yeah, no, <laughs> it was. I mean, this is this is Luther. I mean, Luther is a uh, you know a, a, a sort of a loose cannon in some ways, a wonderful loose cannon. If you read his table talk, uh, which is uh, usually appended to the end of his works. You know, you hear him, basically, his students would all come over for dinner and just write down the things he was saying. And as a professor, oh my, uh, <laughs> I sure hope no one would write down everything I said. Uh, not that I've, you know, ever, um, that I'm anti-Semitic. But it's, you know, this really, um, it, it is, you know, Luther has a, has somewhat of a coarse, uh, coarse uh, tongue. It's, it's not his greatest quality, but his, his greatest quality, which we can look at, is his uh, his sort of fervency in using the New Testament to preach uh, the Christ of the Bible and the grace uh, as it is portrayed in the New Testament. I, I should say there's a, a book called The Fabricated Luther, and that is a, a fantastic work on dealing with how Luther has been mistreated over the years, and it's a it's a very simple, it's an it's an easy and it's a fun read. Um, full disclosure, it's written by Uva Simonetto, who is uh, the head of uh, what we do with the Virtue in the Wasteland. 
But he did his, this is his PhD that he did under Peter Berger, and it works on Luther all the way up through the Nazis and how he was misused. I think we do best when we go to his texts and his, the texts that he wanted to be people, people to read. So he and spends so, what, he spends what, the last 25 of his years of his life writing? Yeah. No, he, he writes just voluminously. I mean, there's so much that he, he has to write. And ultimately, you know, when he, it comes down to it, he thinks that the small catechism, of everything he wrote, he thinks the small catechism, that's enough. You know, that's the people's, uh, that everything he, he has to say is, is there. Um, it, so it's, it's interesting. You, you look at his small catechism. I think that's a very easy way to, to look at Luther. I, uh, you know, Luther scholars would recommend probably on the freedom of the Christian. And he writes that really early on. He writes that in the 1520s. And that simply says that a, a Christian is a completely free man, a servant of none. At the same time, a Christian is completely bound to serve all, but through faith in Christ, one has, has become completely justified and is completely free from doing anything to earn their salvation. It's usually uh, bound up in a, a selection of books called The Three Treatises of yes. Martin Luther. Yep. And that's, that's a and you can also buy it by itself. It's a really, really helpful text. Now, it's important, in a matter of full disclosure, I have a lot of Lutheran friends, but myself being, a, being relatively a, uh, I'm a displaced Presbyterian in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> okay. Um, but I fully understand Luther's impact on, on Calvin as well, oh, absolutely. especially absolutely. in the areas of the will, um, and especially in the area of justification by faith. So, um, Despite the fact that there may be a point or two of the five that we cannot come into total agreement with, sure. it's also yeah, to, it's important to understand that the Reformation was more than just about breaking away from any sort of church. It was about reforming and always reforming. Absolutely. The church is always reforming. And uh, Luther believed this, and, and one of the things that we, we stress in the, the Protestant tradition is while the Word remains steadfast, the Word of God is the same, um, we are fallible people. And so Luther is going to have some great things to say. Uh, his co-worker, uh, Philip Melanchthon, is going to have some great things to say. Calvin's going to have some great things to say. And there are people today who are writing great things. Um, but you have to make sure that at the center of it is Christ's forgiveness uh, for uh, Christ's forgiveness of sin, and a high view of Scripture. And I think when that's at your core, even when you veer off a little bit, um, someone else can call you, call you out and say, hey, not so fast. And I think Luther would, would be first to say, eh, you know, I'd, I'll take some of that back. Yeah, and, and, and just so you understand, next week we're actually going to, because this week's all about the history of the Reformation, or at least the his, church history leading up to the Reformation, and then discussing of, of Calvin and Luther on these last couple days of the week. Um, but next week I'm actually going to deal with the, um, the results. What, what has been the long-term results of the Reformation? Um, and my guests next week are going to be uh, Dr. Michael Horton, uh, Stephen J. Lawson, John Barber, and Joel Beek. So I'm kind of loaded next week. Yeah, with some... <laughs> that's a fantastic. That's a fantastic group of people to yeah. talk about the impact of the Reformation. Yeah, and, and it's great because Lawson's an expert on Puritans. I mean, there's just so many great ways to look at the, what came from the Reformation. But, Malay, but, but you mentioned uh, Philip Melanchthon. That 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 person's really that's a name that is often overlooked and really shouldn't be. Am I right? Yeah, Melanchthon. If if Luther is sort of the the spokesperson of the Reformation, 
Melanchthon is the the sort of real brains behind the initial movement coming out of Wittenberg. He's the he's the the, the expert. Uh, he's the he writes the dogmatics. He he's the one that writes um, a, a lot of the uh, the Augsburg Confession, which is the first confession of faith to be written after. Uh, the Reformation. This is the first Reformation confession. And Melanchthon is an extremely, extremely important fellow who does get sort of overlooked. Yeah, in fact, uh, someone jokingly referred to me in a conversation with a good Lutheran friend. He said, well, it was just because Melanchthonism was really too hard to say, so it went with Lutheranism. <laughs> well, Luther himself, you know, and it's been said, and I, I, I think there's, there's merit to it. He said, whatever you do, don't, when I die, don't call yourself Lutherans. Uh, and, of course, that's what uh, us dummies did. So, yeah. You know, but everyone's, everyone's fallible. With our with our two minutes left, not even that, we only have about a one minute. I think it's important to also note that he was a a good, godly man and a great father and a wonderful husband to his wife. Absolutely, he's. You just need to go to Wittenberg and and see his his where he lived and to to hear the the songs he he wrote the, the you know for his children and the things he wrote and said about his wife. He really is a a, a wonderful. Uh, character. Uh, and for all of his foibles, he was uh, a man who was warm, who even his enemies, uh, one in particular named Karlstadt, had problems, and, and Luther said, well, just come live with me. Uh, you know, always had his door open, always had his, his students over, uh, in many ways is, is a man who, uh, well, we don't want to completely emulate anyone. Luther certainly is a uh, 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 a great, uh, a great guy, and, and not a bad role model. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to you uh, coming back and joining me back sometime in October. We can deal Absolutely. a little bit deeper with the ideas of Reformation Day and the Ninety Five Thesis. Uh, thank you to my guest, Dr. Daniel Van Vuris of. Uh, Concordia University in Irvine, California. Again, as I talked about, join me next week when we talk to Michael Horton, Stephen J. Loss, and John Barber and Joel Beek. And don't forget to join me tomorrow. Tomorrow we are going to be talking to uh, Dr. David Hall on the life of John Calvin, the other bright, shining star of the Reformation. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you were blessed by this discussion on the life of Martin Luther. Join me again tomorrow right here on True Talk 800 at 1 o'clock as we discuss the life of John Calvin. Until then, God bless you and see you tomorrow on Always Ready.